Welcome to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. This podcast brings you teaching and preaching from our archives, and you can find more resources, audio, video, and books at unionpublishing.org. Now, let me tell you what the um, agenda is um, today. We've got three sessions, and in them... Um, we're thinking about just Jesus. That was the title for today. Now, here's the thing. At a gig like this, I'm kind of assuming that we're all comfortable with the gospel of Jesus. Uh, we like Jesus and his message of salvation. But here's the thing. Do we have to then say just Jesus? Jesus alone. Because when modern ears hear phrases like, Jesus is the only way to be saved, they boggle at the thought that any one person or any one group could be so fantastically arrogant and small-minded as to think that they've got the truth and everyone else is wrong. And so today, religion is seen as one of the most divisive things in the world, Perhaps being the thing that really smashes all real hopes of world peace. And, of course, there is a lot to that, isn't there? Northern Ireland, Israel, Palestine, India, Pakistan. And so religious exclusivity smells not only naive, it smells dangerous. All of which makes you think that if Christianity does force us to say Jesus is the only way to be saved, it's something we're only going to say very reluctantly. It's something we'd rather shave off. So there's, there's all this nice stuff in Christianity about um, God's loving kindness and grace. What a shame. There's this nasty prickly side to things. There's, we've got to be divisive. This rude stuff about Jesus being the only way. And so, even if we can't, we wish we could shave this bit off. Right? Know the temptation, know the feeling. And what I want to do today is to show that is not how it is at all. That there is no part of the gospel that we need feel awkward or ashamed about. For in reality, the gospel is not divisive and excluding. And the gospel does not produce arrogant, small-minded bigots. Now, in Jesus, we see the most loving, inclusive, humble God. So, where should we start? Well, I want to start with the old picture of the mountain. You know what I'm talking about? So you've got God and salvation at the top, and all the different world religions are just simply different paths to the top of the mountain. Yeah? You know this one? Different paths, different starting points, different perspectives, but all meandering their way towards true ultimate reality. Now, that image of the mountain and images like it have gone so deep that it affects how we speak. 
So we ask, do all paths lead to the top of the mountain? Or does only one path get there? My answer is no. Do all paths get to the top of the mountain? No. Does only one path get to the top of the mountain? No. Because there is no mountain. Because the different belief systems in the world are not just culturally diverse presentations of the same basic religious instinct. To say they are is the mind trick of the secularist. See, the secularist will say there's factual reality here, which us hard-nosed reasonable types all get and agree on, and you can show it in a lab. And then there's religiosity. And we can lump all religiosity into one bag. And privately, we'll call it freaky. But all that religiosity, however it sort of expresses itself, it's all about the same basic thing. And people buy into it in the post-Christian West. So here's what's actually going on. To us, in the post-Christian West religion is something kind of like Christianity, right? Because that's the religion we're used to. And so, oh, okay, there are other religions other than Christianity. Okay, so what are they? Well, they're just different ways to be saved, different ways to approach God, which is a staggeringly patronizing and culturally blinkered thing to say. For the different world religions are not offering mildly different descriptions of God and ways to go to be with him in heaven. Very few other religions are even offering salvation. Very few actually believe in God. And so to say the different religions are different ways to be saved, different ways to approach God, do you see what they're doing? It's just forcing other religions into a Christian model. It is absurdly condescending and just sloppy thinking. So what I want us to do in our first session now is I want to show what some of the major world religions are offering And then we'll start focusing on what Jesus is offering in the second two. So what I want to do is I want to treat each world religion with complete seriousness and respect on its own terms. Not trying to force it into some other mold, squash it into my own patronizing preconception of what religion ought to be. And when we do that, I think we'll find there isn't some common thing called religion which simply has different cultural manifestations. What we'll see is there are not simply different paths all leading to the top of the same mountain. We see belief systems leading to utterly different destinations. Now, in the West, okay, it's easy for us to see Christianity and atheism are different, right? That shouldn't be too hard to see. They're not 
different cultural manifestations offering the same sort of thing. Christianity and atheism are offering different things. They're not two paths to the top of the same mountain. I want us to see, so it is with Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, Christianity. They are each going in very different directions. All right? So I want us to see that. And as we see that, I think when we then see what Jesus is offering, we'll appreciate it so much more. Okay? So let's start with some Eastern systems of thought. So Confucianism, Buddhism, Hinduism, for example. Now, in those Eastern systems, you've got many, many, well, in Hinduism, millions of gods. Millions of gods. Now, in in the West, that doesn't really compute. So for the Western mind, it's perhaps easiest to think of all those gods as like angels, demons, fairies. They have that kind of status, okay? They're spiritual beings, but they're not ultimate reality, But above them all is this changeless, impersonal force, the unconditioned absolute. Not God. This ultimate reality is not God. This is above all personal being. So, for example, when the Buddha was asked, hear this, when the Buddha was asked, does nirvana exist or does it not exist? He said, no. Does nirvana exist or does it not exist? No. Because the unconditioned absolute is beyond existence or non-existence. So, is there an afterlife in Eastern thought? What would you say? Is there an afterlife in Eastern thought? Have a guess. Who says yay? Who says nay? Who says anything? Come on, who says, hands up if you think there's an afterlife in Eastern thought. Have a crack at it, it doesn't matter. Hands up if you think there isn't one. Okay, you're both right. In Confucianism, no, there is not an afterlife. Uh, Just spot these immense differences as we go. In Confucianism, there's not an afterlife. In Hinduism and Buddhism, there is. But that's precisely the problem. So, by the way, never tell a Buddhist that the good news is that they can be born again. Because while that's true, what they'll hear is they'll go, I know, I know I'll be born again, and again, and again, and again. And that's precisely the problem. So, what a Buddhist wants is he wants to stop being born again. In Hinduism and Buddhism, there is no God... And there is no salvation. That's quite different, right? Uh, Instead of salvation, there is karma in Hinduism, which means you get what you deserve. So, now, by by the way, I mean, you get what you deserve. You're probably not going to get what you deserve in this life, though you may. It's more likely you'll get what you deserve in the next life. So if you rape and steal your way through this life you'll get reincarnated as a dung beetle. Keep going, and you'll be reincarnated as the dung. But if you care for dung beetles and never do anyone any harm, maybe you'll get reincarnated as a priest. Mm. 
And if, you, if you're really good as a priest, maybe you'll be reincarnated as a god. And so reality goes on forever, all of us sliding up and down the ladder of being according to our karma. Now, Buddhism looks at this and thinks, yikes, in a very calm, non-emotive way, of course. Because the Buddhist looks at that and thinks, well, let's be honest, life is full of pain, cancer, bereavement, illness, And so to imagine an eternity where you're constantly being reincarnated, reborn into some new life of pain is awful. And so what you want to do, says the Buddhist, is you want to end samsara, that constant cycle of rebirth, reincarnation. But here's the problem. You want to end that cycle of samsara, of being reborn, but... All being is caught up in samsara. So what's the solution? You need to slip out of being. You need to shake off your body, shake off your consciousness, shake off the illusion that is you. Shake off the illusion that you exist, and then it's over. And to use um, the image that's often used, then the candle flame of you is blown out. That's what you were after. No God, no salvation, but an end to existence achieved through hard striving and meditation. That is Buddhism. And a good deal of Eastern thought. Okay? That's giving you a a thought, some Eastern thought. Let's move into Western thought. Uh, Let's look at um, Islam, Christianity, and the Watchtower Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I I, I know I'm missing out loads of religions here. I'm just trying to span all I reasonably can here. Um, So, Islam first. Now, in Islam, here for the first time, we've got God as ultimate reality. So we've not got some unconditioned absolute beyond all gods and personal being. No, Allah is ultimate reality. Now you could think, aha, well now here we've got real similarity to Christianity, right? Because in both Christianity and Islam, you've got a personal God and all right, in Christianity, God's more Jesus-shaped. In Islam, he's more, well, I won't say Muhammad-shaped, but he's different, a bit. So God in Islam is kind of a bit more Arabian in feel. God in Christianity and Judaism, a bit more Jewish in feel, right? That's, that's it. It's slightly different cultural clothes. In reality... Christianity and Islam have gods so different, it is like the difference between having a god and not having a god. Let me show this to you. Uh, You weren't expecting to hear readings from the Quran today, but here you go. This is Surah 112 from the Quran. In the name of Allah, the compassionate, the merciful, say he, Allah, is one. Allah is he on whom all depend. 
Now get this. He begets not. What does that mean? Sorry? He doesn't, he doesn't beget. Yeah. What does that mean? What does it mean to not beget? What does that mean? No trinity because why? Yeah. So begetting is about having children, right? Having a son. So he begets not means he's not a father, right? He begets not, nor is he begotten, meaning he's not the son. Yeah? So let me read it to you again. Surah 112, in the name of Allah, the compassionate, the merciful, say he, Allah, is one, absolutely one. Allah is he on whom all depend. He begets not, he's not a father, nor is he begotten, he's not the son, and none is like him. Elsewhere in, in the Quran it'll say, do not say Trinity. See, of course, here we've got in the Quran and many other places I haven't quoted, a direct broadside against the most basic claims of Jesus that he is the Son, eternally begotten of the Father. Allah is saying he is not the Trinity. Now, I hope we'll get to see as we go Trinity ain't some bit of optional clothing Christian God can put on when he feels like it. No, the Christian God is Trinity. Father, Son, Spirit. Three persons. Not one person masquerading in three different sets of clothes. Three persons relating to each other. And the one person, Allah, is saying he is not Anything like the three. Now, here you see, it's not just that we've got incompatibly different divine numbers involved. So we've got one person in Islam, three in Christianity. Now, those numbers speak of two completely different sorts of being. Think about it. Allah. Allah has been alone before he decides to create anything. He was alone for all eternity, right? There was nothing beside him. And so, for all eternity, there's nothing or no one he could love. He's all alone. So for all eternity, he's never had anyone or anything he could love. And so love is not a part of who Allah naturally is. He's gone for all eternity without ever having experienced it. Right? Do you see that point? That's really key to be able to get. Allah is not naturally loving. Now, flick with me to John 17, 24. And here, John 17, 24, we'll see how the Christian God is so fundamentally different. And as you look at this, John 17, 24, remember, before creation, Allah was all alone. He could not be loving. 
What's the Christian God like before creation? Jesus says to his father, John 17, 24, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And that is the sort of being the Christian God is, essentially. He is a father loving his son. Hence, 1 John 4, verse 8. Do you know what that is? God is love. For to be father means to love. Yeah, that's what it is to be father, to to have a loving relationship, to give out life, to beget the son. And so before this God ever ruled anything, this God was a life-giving, loving God, eternally giving life to and loving his son. And so Allah, who is not essentially love, who's essentially not loving, who's never loved for all eternity, versus this God who is defined by love. And that difference is going to mean these two gods relate in radically different ways. So here's the thing. There is no salvation in Islam. Now, there's paradise to be had, sure, but it's got to be earned. In other words, Allah sets the rules for admission, but you've got to pass the test. And it's only those who earn it who get it. But that's not salvation. Salvation is not a word you use in Islamic theology. So Allah has not stepped in to save you if you get paradise. You've simply got what you earned. And of course, it is only with a God of love that you get better than you deserve. That is a key point. It is only with a God of love that you get better than you deserve. And the only way to have a God of love is to have a God who's not solitary and alone before creation with nothing to love for all eternity. The only way you can have a God of love is to have Trinity. Father, loving Son, and the Spirit before creation. Therefore, only with a Trinity do you have a God of love. Only with a Trinity can you get better than you deserve. And we'll see, oh, how much better we get than we deserve. We'll be coming back to and unpacking a load of these things later on as we really press into what Jesus offers in our next session. But for now, let's move on to the JWs. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses... Historically, they're obviously a spin-off of Christianity. And so with the Watchtower, you do have a religion of salvation. Because religions and sects that are indebted to Christianity usually do have something they'll call salvation. Whereas other religions don't usually have any actual salvation on offer for their believers. But, and just notice some... Very obvious parallels with Islam here as we look at the Jehovah's Witnesses. 
very obvious parallels. Because the Jehovah's Witnesses reject Trinity, it's a very different sort of salvation you get. You see, if Jesus isn't really God, as the Jehovah's Witnesses insist, if, as the Jehovah's Witnesses insist, Jesus is just some exalted angel, then he can't really bring you to know God. Yeah? If Jesus... Think about it. Okay, let's say God, Jehovah, exists on some cosmic throne. Jesus is some created angel who sort of flaps around the heavenly throne every now and again, perhaps. Yeah? But Jesus is not the Father's only begotten and beloved Son. If Jesus is just some angel, well, Jesus can only share with us what's already his. And so if Jesus is just some created angel, all he can give us is some angelic status before God. Yeah? He can never bring us to know God as my Abba. This God simply cannot offer that. For Jehovah has no son. The other thing is, because Jesus isn't really God, he doesn't, in the Jehovah's Witness um, thinking, he doesn't come with God's grace, really, to save us. But because, think, this Jehovah, like Allah, is a lonely, solitary God. No trinity. No Father, Son, and Spirit loving each other. No. So, like Allah, he is not actually essentially a loving God. There's a problem here, of course, because the Jehovah's Witnesses have a version of the New Testament which they'll treat as Scripture, where it says in 1 John 4, verse 8, God is love. But there's the problem for the Jehovah's Witnesses, because... A Jehovah's Witness reads 1 John 4, verse 8, and that's lovely. That's really nice to read. But such a statement can only be window dressing for that Jehovah. Because if Jehovah, like Allah, is not naturally loving, if he's not Trinity, he's not eternally loved before having creation, you can say Jehovah is loving till the cows come home but it's like trying to dress up Mike Tyson like Mother Teresa. You can say he's loving, but it don't fit. Now, because this Jehovah cannot be a God of love, being eternally solitary, of course, he doesn't give people better than they deserve. And so, Jehovah's Witnesses believe in salvation... But it's a salvation that hardly qualifies as salvation. Because you have to be a Jehovah's Witness in good standing to earn it. Bluntly, it's a fine mess they've got themselves into. Because having foolishly accepted the Bible in some form as authoritative, they've got to say they believe in salvation by God's grace because the Bible so clearly teaches it. But the God that they've got themselves, because he's not Trinity, 
is not a God of love, is not a God capable of offering grace or such salvation. So, let me read you something. Uh, This is from a Jehovah's Witness publication called Kingdom Ministry. And just listen to the very sort of awkward language that they have to use. Here from Kingdom Ministry, it says, we want, just listen to this, we want to give deserving ones the opportunity to learn of Jehovah's undeserved kindness. Huh? We want to give deserving ones the opportunity to learn of Jehovah's undeserved kindness. So, if it's undeserved kindness, why is it only given to the deserving ones? Because you don't really believe in grace. You can't with that God. Okay, so what do we see from our quick, basic, set-up-the-day survey of world religions? Well, obviously, and I hope this is really clear, they're clearly offering fundamentally different destinations and visions of reality. In ultimate reality, is there a God, Christianity, or isn't there, Hinduism? Is there an afterlife, Islam, or isn't there? Confucianism. Can having a next life be a good thing, Jehovah's Witness, or can it only be a bad thing, Buddhism? Is there salvation, Christianity, or is there only striving, Islam? But the thing I really want us to notice is this. No other God than the one revealed by Jesus, the eternal Son of the Father. No other God seems capable, loving enough, to offer what really amounts to salvation. And if for some reason they feel they really ought to offer something called salvation, they will make you work for it. And they'll keep you at a distance. So think of the Muslim. However faithful he is, however many pilgrimages he goes on, however many prayers he says, however many alms he gives, he will never get to see Allah. He will never have a personal relationship with Allah. Allah will never be his loving father. The faithful Muslim will be forever a slave. Oh, rewarded with 70 virgins and rivers of wine, perhaps, but a slave. And the same with the Jehovah of the Witnesses. Convert as many as you can dream of. You will never get close to Jehovah. And you'll never be his beloved child. You can't be. Jehovah has no son. You can be, but his creature. That's set the sort of negative background. What I want to pile into next is to see that with Jesus, things are very, very different. Joy-giving, beautiful, 
incomparable good news. I want to see in the next session that Jesus offers us an incomparable God, an incomparably lovely God, an incomparable salvation, an incomparably lovely salvation. That's what we'll see in the next two sessions. You've been listening to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. Union is devoted to growing leaders and growing churches. Our School of Theology equips leaders for ministry. Union Publishing supplies them and their churches with quality theological resources and books. Union Mission supports and financially helps church planting and revitalization. And Newton House, Oxford, invests in the next generation of theologians and scholars. Our vision is to see leaders and their churches the world over reformed and renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out about our courses and learning communities around the world, to buy union books, to discover support for your church plant, or to become a friend of union and support our ministry, visit www.theola.gy.